1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going through the epistle of 1 Corinthians. We find ourselves in chapter 3. The title of the message this morning, Take Heed How You Build. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this time in your word. And we just pray, Father, as we continue to go through this epistle, that we can learn, Lord, uh, just the, the depths of truths that are found here. So go before our time as we lift it up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me give you a little history of where we've been. So 1 Corinthians is written by the Apostle Paul. He was in the city of Corinth for about a year and a half. He stayed there ministering to them, and then he would move on and eventually make his way towards Rome. In Rome is where he would write this epistle, and so he would be in Rome writing 1 Corinthians. And I, I just, as I was reading chapters 1, chapters 2, and then chapter 3 again here, what we're going to look at, in chapter 1, he starts out letting them know that their security is found in Christ. They're saints because they're called to be saints. And the fact that we are saved and born again and, and children of God really has nothing to do with us. And that idea and that concept of, of love and God's unconditional love for us is something that should really just blow us away. That God loves me. God loves me just the way I am. And whether I'm being a knucklehead, whether I'm in or out or doing it or not doing it, God loves me. And so he calls them saints. He immediately begins to get into what was going on. This is a corrective epistle. In other words, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in Corinth at this church that needs to be corrected, that needs to be addressed. And so he addresses those things and he immediately brings out the divisions. Remember, uh, some of you say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, who was Peter, I am of Christ. And so there was a division and he's saying we shouldn't be divided. And because they were divided, it shows that they weren't growing in the faith. And so that's a concern. After that, he talks about our calling and the fact that we're foolish um, in, in thinking that we're wiser than God. We can't be smarter than God. We don't, we don't hold that kind of wisdom. And so he lets us know that God chooses the weak things of the world, the simple things, the things that are based to bring to nothing the things that are. And so that we need to be careful in that foundational understanding that we need God. We need to look to God. We need to trust in God. We need to hope in God. But we also need God to guide us and to direct us. And then after that, he mentions two groups of people. He mentions pe people who are spiritual and people who are natural. And he says the natural people are basically not saved. They're not born again. They're, they're in Adam. They're people who have yet to surrender their lives. Their spirit is dead. So we come into the world, body, soul, spirit. Their spirit is dead. And until they come to Christ, are they spirit, soul, and body? Their spirit is made alive once they come to Christ and they are born again according to John chapter 3. And so he mentions those two groups of people and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see he mentions a third group of people. So let's pick it up there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. And so he mentions this third group of people, and he calls them carnal. 
Now, some in the body of Christ believe that there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. But they're contradicting what it says right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. I remember in the college and career when I was a um, pastor over the college and career ministry in Downey, we did a, a retreat. And one of the messages that um, I was putting the layout together, and so I wanted one of the speakers to address carnal Christians. And so I titled his message, I forgot what the exact title was, but it had carnal Christians or what is a carnal Christian. And um, I remember the the pastor from another church, he comes up and he's sharing. And basically he says, uh, there's no such thing as carnal Christians. And then he just went on to go do this whole message that I wanted nothing to do with, it's like, bro, there are carnal Christians. The Bible says they're carnal Christians. And so I think some Christians are scared to admit that there are carnal Christians. And Paul is addressing carnal Christians right here. Remember, because this is a corrective epistle, he's addressing a lot of things that were going bad or not good. And to admit that there are carnal Christians or to say that there aren't carnal Christians isn't necessarily a a bad thing. I likened it to grace. A lot of people don't like to mention the reality of grace for the Christian. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We're used by grace. If anything good can be spoken of in our lives or out of our lives, it's because of God's grace. It's goodness. It's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. And God's grace to me is is just this gigantic, awesome thing that just, it compels us to just want to continue to serve the Lord and look to the Lord and grow in the Lord because he's so good to us. He's so gracious towards us. And so as some Christians don't like to mention grace because they're afraid that if Christians get a hold of grace, they're just going to go out and sin with reckless abandon because they're going to take advantage of God's grace. And I think grace has the opposite effect. When I'm in touch with God's goodness, it melts me. It breaks me. It just, it just causes me to, wow, Lord, you're so good. It's almost like, stop being so good because I feel so guilty. And God's like, nope, I'm going to keep being good. I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to keep bringing it like that. And so it, it makes me want to just, oh, Lord, I just want to love you more. I just want to fall in love with you over and over again because your grace is so good. And so hopefully we're in touch with grace. In addition... Where do you find yourself? Are you the natural man that's not even born again, that doesn't know God, that maybe you're religious, maybe you understand religious concepts, but really when it comes down to it, you want nothing to do with God. Are you the spiritual man, spiritual woman that has been born again and you're looking to God and you're trusting that, man, God's growing me up and I want to participate with that? Or are you the carnal Christian And we're going to see what that is, but that individual ultimately is an individual that is led by the flesh as opposed to by the Spirit. Are you living a purposeful life? Are you living life on purpose? Are you blessed to know that your days are ordained by God and that He has things for you, divine appointments that He wants to set up for you, wonderful blessings to bestow upon you for sure, But in the midst of all that's going on, he wants to use you for his glory, for his kingdom. And so I do believe that there are carnal Christians. I love this quote from Redpath. 
He says the carnal Christian is a child of God, born again and on his way to heaven, but is traveling third class. Why would we do that, right? Why would we put ourselves in the baggage compartment when we can be in first class as Christians? Romans 7 is a portrait of the carnal Christian and dwelt by the Spirit, but mastered by the flesh. And I think if we were all honest, we can all say, yeah, yeah, I've had moments of Romans 7 for sure in my life where we look at the law and we look at the commandments of God and we say, man, the things that I want to do, I, I don't find myself doing. And the things that I shouldn't be doing, those are the very things that I'm doing. Who can deliver me from this bondage of death? It would go on to say in Romans chapter 7. There is a difference between being fleshy, the Greek word S-A-R-K-I-N-O-S, sarkinos, used in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, and being fleshly. So a difference between fleshy and fleshly. The Greek word sarkikos, S-A-R-K-I-K-O-S, used here in this passage. Fleshly is simply made of flesh. It can speak of the weaknesses, uh, the weakness that is common to every fallen human. Fleshly, when used of a person, means characterized by the flesh. It speaks of the one who can, can and should do differently, but does not. Paul says that the Corinthians were sarkikos, a different word than fleshy, fleshly. And again, it's just simply what? Ruled by the flesh. And so we don't want to be ruled by the flesh. An individual that defaults to the flesh. An individual that has that chip on their shoulder. That if somebody touches a certain button in their life, it just off the handle, right? We don't want to be fleshly. Fleshy, yeah, we're all weak. We're all susceptible to weakness. Because we're in this body of death. But fleshly, that's a whole different thing. So Paul has spoken to us about three categories of men. As I mentioned, there's the natural man who is patterned after Adam and rejects the things of the Spirit. There's the spiritual man who knows the things of God. And there's the carnal man who knows the things of God, yet in some significant ways is still characterized by the flesh. And we have to ask ourselves, which one do I identify with? Hopefully we're that spiritual man, that spiritual woman that desires and longs for the things of God, that wants to walk in the Spirit, that wants to please God, that wants to show God out of gratitude for so much that He's done for us. Lord, I just want to love you back. I just want my life to be meaningful to you in that sense. So we go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He goes on to say in verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so what he's doing now, he's breaking down their divisions. And he's saying that if you have groups of people that are saying they are following after men, that is a fleshly, fleshly um, thing. And I think we do it, unfortunately, in the church. When we ask people, hey, what church do you go to? 
Why are you asking them? You asking them to share the gospel with them? You asking them because you want to see if they know the Lord, not know the Lord? Or are you asking them because you think there's a better church? There's a better church on the hierarchy of churches. If they're saved, if they're born again, if they're Christians, does it matter what church they go to? As long as they're in church and they're able to get fed the word and grow in the grace and knowledge of God's word. And I think that's what he's getting down to, these divisions that were created. We need to be careful with men and with people and with the names on the outside of our buildings. Ultimately, if a person is at a church where they're being blessed and fed, then praise God, leave them alone. Let them continue to be at that place where they can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of God's word. But I do it. I've been guilty of it. I'll be talking to somebody and come to find out that they're Christian or so they're saying they're Christian. So I'll say, oh, so what church you go to? Oh, you go to one of those. All right, yeah. Yeah, it ain't like our church, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know if you know about our church, but we teach the Word. We're in the Word up in here. We're going to do 40-minute Bible study, sometimes 50 minutes. Woo! You know? I was thinking as I was studying this chapter about Christians throughout the just the whole history of the church, starting back in the first century A.D. and what they had access to. And I, think, I, don't, I don't think we understand how spoiled we are with the access to good teaching, to solid Bible teaching on the radio. Man, you could dial up a station and just boom, get a Bible study that is just dropping the word and bringing it and expounding on it. And we have all of this knowledge But I'm sorry to say, if we would just obey the things we know, we'd be like radical Christians, would we not? Like we already know so much. I I really don't think, and this might sound heretical, but I don't think we need another Bible study. I I think we just need to walk in the truths that we already know. I I think we need to be humbled to the point, to the extent that we would just want to, Lord, Lord, just help me to obey what I know, God. Just strengthen me and my inner man to, to be able to do what you're calling me to do for this next moment, for the people that I'm going to be in front of, for my family, my friends, the people that I interact with, my coworkers, my schoolmates, to those things. Lord, help me to actually be what you want me to be. And I don't think it's because we lack truth or we lack knowledge. We have access to so much. Do you realize for for the overwhelming majority of church history, they didn't even have one of these. They didn't even have one of these. I saw a video of these Bibles landing in a third world country where they would go to church and, and the church was basically, it had a makeshift covering and the church was flooded because of the storms that had taken place. People were in three feet of water, raising hands, lifting hands, just worshiping God, happy to be in church with the people of God. And so the Bibles landed and people were crying, kissing the Bible because it would be the first that their family would have access to. And they would take turns passing that Bible to each member within the family. I kid you not, I probably have 10 to 12 Bibles at home. And we're just blessed like that. But sometimes I don't think we take it, it just think about church history and everything that has taken place. And yet, were there godly people in those eras who didn't have access to the Word of God? Yeah. I would say throughout history, there have been godly people 
for the Lord, right? And what was it, if we were to look through the history of time, what was it? Because we think, well, I listen to Bible studies all day, man. You don't even know, man. Sue, so, quote me a verse. I'll bet you I could tell you where it is. Okay, you live in it. You know what's in the Bible and you know that it's there. But are you living it? Are, are, are you expressing this love for people? Because I think that's what it comes down to. These godly people, they loved God so much that they simply wanted to obey God. Isn't that what it comes down to? Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments? So we know the commandments. We have all of this knowledge. We have access to the Bible, to the Word, to the Word of God, all these studies, everything. But take yourself and put yourself in any epoch in history, church history. How would you fare, if you will, with the Christians that were considered, man, those people love the Lord. We can tell because it wouldn't be how much we know. It wouldn't be how many Bible studies we listen to. It wouldn't be how much we go to church or don't go to church. It would be, I love God. And the simplicity of my life proves it. It shows it. It manifests it. But instead, we have all of these different things. So as we go on, Paul writes in verse 5, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so he lets us know that as far as these people that they were elevating, I'm of this class in this category. I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. He's like, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? It's God that gave the increase. All these guys did on their best day was water, plant. That's all they really did. And so we need to be very careful. I found a quote here from McLaren. It says, so what was the use of fighting which of the two nothings was greater? They're fighting over two nothings, two human beings, two individuals. And again, I think we should be thankful that we have individuals that can teach the word and individuals that can be used by God. But why do we put such emphasis on human beings? A human being is going to do one thing and it's going to do one thing well if you get to know that human being. They're going to show you their humanity. They're going to show you that they're, they're just like you, frailed, flawed, uh, human, weak. It's God that we thank for the teachers that he blesses us with. It's God that we look to for the teaching that we can receive. But we got to be careful not to elevate people or Calvary Chapel or Baptist or Catholic or whatever the name is on the outside of the building, that we would elevate the Lord through the system that he was able to use to cause us to come to him. There are many dead systems out there that many don't find life, and yet people are exalting the system. Well, are you, are you, are you going to heaven? Are you, are you saved? Are you born again? Well, I'm a this or I'm a that. No, 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 I didn't ask you if you were this or you that. I'm asking, are you saved? Are you born again? Does the Spirit of God dwell within you? And so I think, again, we need to be careful not to elevate 
people. I get very, very, very hurt when some of these men of God fall. And I see God using these guys tremendously. And then all of a sudden, they just fall from grace. And I ask myself, why am I so hurt? Why am I so just like amazed that they would do that? They're human. And any one of us is capable of any sin. Any one of us is capable of falling from grace if we don't keep our eyes on the Lord, if we don't look to Him for our strength, if we don't walk in obedience to what He's calling us to at each moment. We can cover up, we can pretend, we can put our best foot forward and people are looking at us, wow, you must be so holy. No, you don't know what goes on in my mind. You don't know what goes on behind doors. You don't know what goes on with my family. You want to know where somebody's at? Talk to their family. Talk to the people that are closest to them. They'll give you the reality of their life. And what will be the result? All of us are flawed. All of us are weak. All of us have uh, frailties. All of us have chinks in our armor that the enemy can get to. And so we need to be in prayer for one another, but we need to be careful from elevating human beings. We need to look to the Lord. And I think that's what Paul's letting them know. This church has so many things wrong with it, and they're boasting and they're prideful about what club they belong to. It's like, whoa, no, get this other stuff. You guys are suing one another. You guys have sexual sin in the church you need to address and you're boasting about it your marriages are just all messed up you have all of this stuff that's messed up but you're prideful about what group you belong to really does that even mean anything get your little house in order get your life together get your single life don't look around look within what are the things that god wants to communicate to you specifically So he says then, it's important for us to plant, it's important for us to water, but it's God who gives the increase. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow worker, you are God's field, you are God's building, according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward." If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so he encourages the church here in Corinth and us as well that we should be careful how we lay on the foundation that has already been laid. And then he lets us know there's no other foundation except what? Jesus Christ. So it's not all roads lead to heaven. It's not, well, whatever you believe, it really doesn't matter. It'll all wash out in the end. No. The foundation is Jesus. 
Jesus is the only way we're going to be saved. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what He said. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence of speech. I didn't come with all these masterful words. I came to you knowing nothing but Christ and Him crucified. So that's the foundation for sure. But and then, what are we building on that foundation? Title of the message once again, Take Heed How You Build. What are you pouring in people's lives? What are you doing for people as it relates to being used by God in that foundation of Jesus Christ as the foundation, and then now you get to work for God? The foundation is Jesus, but how are you pouring into lives? Are you being gracious? Are you being merciful? Are you being patient, long-suffering? Or are we being all those other things that we get into rude and and moody and and short-tempered and hostile and angry and bitter and all of those things that are wood, hay, and stubble, wood, hay, and straw? And then I love how he lets us know Through an act of mercy, this is the judgment for the Christian. And it's called the Bema Seed of Christ. We will be judged. For salvation? No, he lets us know. You're going to be saved. But the day is going to reveal. What's the day? The day of judgment. The Bema Seed of Christ. Where what you do and I do with this life and the motives of why we did what we did will be judged. And if we did things with the proper motive, then we're going to have rewards in heaven. But if not, if the motive was whack and twisted and carnal, then it's going to disintegrate. And we're going to receive no rewards for that. And I don't know, for some people, I guess that's not a big deal. Well, at least I'm going to heaven. Yeah, yeah, we are going to heaven. And that is a consolation. That's a great consolation. At least we're going to heaven. And we could smile for that. And we could like, you know what? Life is hard. I'm just jacking it up. I know I am, but at least I'm going to heaven. Amen. I'm with you on that one. But at the same time, that should mean something to us because it means something to God. He created you so that you would, be pre- you would use this life for preparation for eternity, and he wants to bless you with rewards. He wants to give you good things when you stand before him. He desires and longs to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And our faithfulness in hearing well done, good and faithful servant will be done because the motives of what we did will be proven in that day. And so there should be a motivation on our part. I I do want to hear that, Lord. That is my motivation. Your love compels me, as Paul said. It's my constraining thing. It's the thing that, man, really drives me towards why I do what I do. If you look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, you can see their motives oftentimes was what? To be seen of men. That's why they did what they did. They loved the applause of men. And so Jesus says, there you have it. You have your reward in full. You know, a hundred dollars in the offering. Here it goes. Anybody looking? Anybody looking? Benjamin right here. Going to lay a big loot in the the plate. Boom, boom. Handle that. Ooh, did you see that? Everybody see that? Yeah, I gave. I gave to the cost. Wow. You have a hundred dollar bill. And there's your reward. Wood, hay, and straw. In in the day of judgment. 
Well, where's my reward? I sent $100 ahead. What did it buy me? I got your applause. So we need to be careful the motive of our hearts and why we do what we do. And all that, because that's deep inside, is it not? Moving on, he goes. Actually, verse 15, I did want to mention this on this verse. He says in verse 15, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire. Uh, This verse is used for the doctrine of purgatory. But in the context, it has to do with rewards. Your works are going to be burned. Not you are going to be burned. Purgatory teaches that if you have sins that are left over in your life that sort of you didn't work out and you didn't repent of or you were living in those sins when Christ takes you home, then you have to pay for those sins by going into this place. It's kind of this interim in between heaven and earth. So earth and then heaven, but there's this place of purgatory that you'll go to to be able to burn and suffer in a hell-like condition until those sins are purged. And then once you've purged those sins, then you'll be able to go to heaven. That's not, that's not biblical. The fire does not purify the worker. It tests their workmanship. Roman Catholics use this passage to teach purgatory. The idea that when we die, we go to a place where we are purified by fire before we go to heaven. The idea of purgatory has nothing to do with this passage and nothing to do with any other passage in the Bible. Purgatory is strictly a human invention and denies the finished work of Jesus for the believer. Jesus Christ died on the cross and in the midst of that death, he said, it is finished. The debt is paid in full is what that word means. Tetalistai in the Greek, paid in full. It's an accounting term. And so we were judged by Jesus. He was judged on our behalf, on the cross. All of our sins are forgiven. There's a scripture that um, is in the Catholic Bible in 2 Maccabees. It's the Apocrypha. And we believe that these are historical books. We believe that they have good historical facts that we can look to. But we do not believe that they are inspired uh, like the Word of God, the 66 books within the canon of the Scriptures, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. They add four different books. One of them is First and Second Maccabees, and this is what it says in Second Maccabees 12.46. It says, Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from sin. And that and this verse here in 1 Corinthians 3 are the two verses they use for the doctrine of purgatory. Doctrine of purgatory is not of God. So we need to recognize that. Jesus Christ was judged on my behalf on the cross. All of my sins paid in full. I'm going to heaven not because of anything I've done, but because of what he did for me on the cross. And again, that should just... Free us up to just receive this salvation and to be so thankful to God for paying the price. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so Jesus was made sin. I shared at a memorial service on Friday. And the individual that passed away was a good man. 
He comes out of that generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, born between 1924 and 1964. And he calls, his, the title of his book is The Greatest Generation. And so I, I quoted some quotes out of that, and I said, you know what? This man was a good man. The things that his family told me, he was a hard worker, never complained. He had a leg condition that caused him to wrap his legs, and he would, he would, he would cry. Nobody knew he would cry because he was a strong man. But he would cry in pain because of the pain that he had in his leg. And he would go to work every day in spite of the pain, never complaining, never letting anyone know how hard it was, how difficult he was. That generation came out of their parents, the Great Depression, so they knew uh, the value of money because of that. And then they come through World War II, and so they know hard work because of that. And so that just caused this generation, again, as Tom Brokaw writes, to be the greatest generation. And I said, this man was a good man, but this man wouldn't have went to heaven because of his goodness. Because our goodness is only relative in compared to one another. So this generation is the greatest generation in comparison to what? All other generations. But in comparison to the standard of God, which is what? Perfection. We all fall short of that. None of us are, we may be good, but we're not good enough. And so you may be good, but you're not good enough to make it in your own strength, your own merit. Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's standard is not one another. Well, let's see, okay, these guys over here for sure, Saddam Hussein, Hitler, you know, Attila the Hun. I got this category, Al Capone, this category over here, right? But then compared to them, wow, you really make it, yeah. And and I I told this group that I thought when I was a non-Christian that God kind of graded on a curve. Like if my good outweighs my bad, then I got all this bad stuff. Oh, I got to be nice to lady. Uh, let me let me help the old lady carry her grocery bags to her car. You know, then, hey, okay, I'm doing kind of like as long as my good outweighs my bad, then I make it. That's not God's standard. God's standard is absolute perfection to make it into heaven. And Jesus was the only one that was good enough. He was the only one that was perfect. And he took our place. And so we will stand before God in our own righteousness or in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only thing that's going to make it, right? It's either your righteousness or the righteousness of another. Jesus Christ, the perfect one. And if it's our righteousness, unfortunately, we all fall short. Because none of us are perfect. And so as I was sharing that with them, I was just letting them know, are you going to stand before God in your own righteousness? Or in the righteousness of Christ. And for that, we've got to be thankful and grateful to God. This last section, starting at verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. And he ends on a very gracious note. He's not putting them down for, all right, you have these divisions. You have these individuals that you're looking at. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Who gave you Paul? Who gave you Apollos? Who gave you Peter? Wasn't it God that blessed you with these 
anointed men with these individuals who could teach and you like their style or whatever? You look to God once again. And so God has given you these wonderful blessings so that you can grow, so that you can enjoy. When he says, all are yours, this is Christian liberty. When he says, and you are Christ, this is Christian responsibility. And so what are we doing with the all that we have? Are we being responsible? Are we responding to God in obedience to the blessing that we have access to? Or are we just taking it for granted? Yeah, I mean, I, I can go. I mean, I can go. It's on every corner. I got a good one. I'll just pick this one this week and this one this week. And now I won't go for another year or something. No. Let's check this out and recognize that these individuals that God has blessed us with, um, what a blessing from God. And our response to that should be, wow, not only do I want to hear wonderful teachers and take in the word and, and, and the access that we have to in this day and age, but I want to obey it as well. And so let's be encouraged to do that. Be careful or take heed how you build. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can have access to such awesome teachings, Lord, in Southern California, on the radio, Lord, iPod, um, on the web, access to incredible truths. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength to obey what we are learning, that you would um, give us those things that you want us to be uh, moving towards as far as growing, not uh, needing to set a foundation of foundational things, but that we would grow and continue to mature in the things of God through obedience, through having our senses exercised because we are maturing by growing up in the things of God and not just growing older. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've blessed us with so much and that we can continue, Father, to grow in the grace and knowledge of your word. I pray that you would use us for your glory, Lord, and I pray that there would be a desire on our part just to continue to look to you for everything that we need and to recognize that the good things that we have, the wonderful things that we have and have access to are gifts from you. So we thank you, Lord, for those things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.